Good day, I'm Mark Pesci, and welcome to the final show in the 2014 series of This Week in Startups Australia. In this episode, we'll speak to Jessica Wilson, a 23-year-old powerhouse who has built a global online fashion retailer in just 10 months. Then we'll have a chat to Blackbird Ventures' Rick Baker, who tells us that VCs in Australia have to work as hard raising money for their funds as any startup would. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Fishburners, Australia's largest startup space, with 90 startups working from one large building in Ultimo, including this recording studio. Fishburners is a non-profit dedicated to supporting entrepreneurs and has a pitching competition open to the public every Friday afternoon at 4.30. Find out more at fishburners.org. Tis the season when retailers begin to rake in the big bucks from Christmas sales. But retail isn't anything like what it was a generation ago. I buy half my presents online, and I'm, I'm hardly alone in that. But the interesting thing is that Australia has one of the most underdeveloped online retail sectors in the world. Let me tell you a little story. Last year at Christmas time, retail giant Meyer, one of the big department stores in Australia, what happened? Its online storefront went down for a week, the week between Boxing Day and New Year's Day. That is the second busiest retailing week of the year. And for the first few days, Meyer's CEO basically treated it as if it were a minor inconvenience and not a career-ending failure. And that pretty much tells you everything you need to know about online retail in Australia. But I'm here today with a woman who is working very hard to change that. Jessica Wilson, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you for having me. So tell us now, you've created an app. I have. Called Stashed. What does it do? Stashed is... We've kind of mixing up the way people are online shopping now. So we've centralized a lot of different stores that ship globally and we've changed the way they shop. So it's not scrolling through multiple different um, tabs on online, on your desktop, on your mobile. We've centralized everything and we've kind of gamified it in a sense. So it's people like to refer to it as Tinder for fashion. So <laughs> Okay. So so I get to thumbs up or thumbs down. Yes, something. well you can stash or trash. So if you don't like something, you swipe it left and then it's gone forever, you're never gonna see it again. And then if you like something, you swipe it right, then it gets stored into your virtual wardrobe we call it. Mm-hmm. And then from there you can share it with a friend via email, text, social media, or you can just go straight through the store and buy it. So we've kind of centralized a lot of different online stores and then we've kind of gamified it as well. So people are more engaged with online shopping. And has that then been received really well by... Oh, my gosh. Because because it's so much easier? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're in a time now where everything is just simplified and everything's really fast and happening. Social media is huge now. And right. it's kind of like we in the space of... how long, I've been with Stash now for about 10 months. We've got users in 86 countries and we've got 3,000 brands on the app now. So wow. people have just taken to it and it's kind of spread like wildfire, which is super exciting. So do you have the brands coming to you and begging you yeah. to get into Stash Yeah, now? I mean, we've got um, the four largest globally shipping stores at the moment. So we've got Net-A-Porter, Mr. Porter, Sense.com and Farfetch. Yeah. Um, and we've also got like up-and-coming designers contacting us. Um, we've had a lot of large retailers in Australia and in the US contact us and they can kind of see that... Um, users they really like to be engaged with stash and it's addictive so Mm. they're going to be seeing their products (laughs) (laughs) so uh, 
Are you focusing on the premium retail end of the market, not discounting? At the moment, yes. Um, just because it's getting us a fair a fair bit of um, PR placements in the magazines that we need to get to our consumers, um, and also. It's kind of, it's hard to explain, but it's like a top tier model in retail that seems mm. to work quite well. Mm. So from now we're bringing on stores like ASOS and we've had people like David Jones contact us and people like that. So now because we've got those premium brands. Right, they the, want to follow. Yeah, exactly. So it's, yeah, so it's working quite well. So so you've been at this 10 months, you said? Yeah, we've only been in the App Store for 10 months. Okay, so... Where did you get the idea? <laughs> My background's in fashion. So right. I work during Australia, New York and Paris Fashion Week and I work on seating plans. So I've kind of seen the shift in the seating plans with the okay, online stores are moving forward and uh, brick and mortar stores are moving back and mm-hmm. fashion bloggers who are online are moving forward. And mm-hmm. I was like, look, there needs to be something um, in the online retail space to really captivate an audience a lot more than what there is. So I set off to Silicon Valley just randomly when I was in New York for two weeks, met a heap of people there, just ran some ideas past them and they're like yeah that's awesome so i came back here moved into fish burners mm. um met my co-founder pete and we just built stashed and it ended up going quite well <laughs> how how long did it take you to sort of sit down and explain it to pete and sell pete on this idea and, it was, and a, it was an it? idea together so um pete built the app in about six weeks right. so it just all wow. happened very quickly wow and yeah. and and, it, and the and you've had this amazing response to it yeah right? so I mean, do you want to talk too much about... I mean, basically, you take a cut of the transaction. So when yep. someone buys clothing through it, you take a percentage mm-hmm. of the transaction. Do yep. you want to sort of talk about your transaction yeah, volume? Yeah, so at the moment, it just works in a way that everything that we sell, we take a percentage cut of. It mm. ranges between about 9 to 11%. Mm-hmm. Stores that we're bringing on because they want to be associated with our brands, they're going up to 16 to 20%. Right. So that's just through association. They're willing to give us more of a commission rate. Um, what we're looking to do is move into... Um, Relaying the data back to larger online retailers so they can make smarter marketing decisions. So that's kind of where we're heading at the moment. And that's something that's super exciting because a lot of brick and mortar stores, like you mentioned Maya, they don't really know what their consumers want half the time. So if we can literally tell them, okay, I like this, I don't like this, um, that's something that is super valuable to them. Well, this is something that's well known that a store like Zara specializes in, right? That they're constantly reviewing uh, Uniqlo, which has just opened up in Sydney. It's like my favorite because it's all Mm -hmm. classic clothing. But they're constantly watching what's moving off the shelves. That's going back in directly into a rapid manufacturing cycle Mm -hmm. so they know exactly what they're making of everything. Mm -hmm. So you now have this capacity to bring that to pretty much any retailer yep. mm-hmm. that's that's huge so it, that is may, huge, yeah. it may be that in a way you're more of a big data play than yeah, a retailing well, play yeah exactly well i mean right now we're heavily into the retail but we're moving into the big data yeah. play that's definitely where we're heading so if i were using it now stashed by the way i i did did open it up yeah but it requires a facebook login it does and uh, we're keen on the facebook login i don't have a facebook account i'm i'm one of the people who don't have facebook i actually did have a facebook account you're like the first person i met that doesn't well i I did have one but then i resigned a few years ago very publicly and and i don't i mean i have a fake account i don't Mm -hmm. really use that for anything except when i need to check for a client what's going on on facebook um so you're relying on all of that data, but that data that that also means that a lot a lot of your data is also passing through Facebook along the way, isn't yes. it? So, do you do you worry about whether Facebook is going to take that data and use it to, to compete against you? Or? Um, I mean, not at the moment. I don't think so. No, I mean, that's the data that we're taking from that is kind of it's helping the retailers and the designers. And it's also helping the consumers mm. with um, sending them items that's going to appeal to them. Mm-hmm. So working within Stash at the moment, it's not something I'm too worried about. So 
if I log in, is that is it all women's clothing or is there men's clothing? No, there's men's clothing as well. It, is it a much smaller supply or is it no. sort of equal? It's about equal. Yeah. Okay. All right. So if I go in there and I take a look at something and I trash it, mm-hmm. does that trash all the things that are like it or does it just no, trash that? No, it just that? trashes that one item. So there's no sort of sense of a learning system. We're just you're going to see stuff and you have to judge it, but it won't yeah. go. Oh, he's never going to wear those. He's never going to wear chinos or he's never no. going to wear check shirts. Uh, or we decided we wanted to keep it super random because right. something that I think isn't being utilized in online shopping as much is impulse purchases. Yeah. So I can do the well, they're hard learning. to do online. Yeah, That's the exactly. Thing, right? Yeah. So if I can keep sending random pieces, <laughs> you might not know that you like it, but then you're going to see it and you're like, okay, well, I actually like that. You could have been looking for a shirt, but you're going to buy two jackets and a pair of shoes because it's put in front of you. Right. And it's too categorized online shopping at the moment because you have to literally search if it's a jacket or a shoe or a shirt and you it's, you don't open up to the possibilities of what else you might potentially like. Do you think this is going to feed into brick and mortar and that brick and mortars are going to start using things like stashed as an interface to their store to help get people to I come into so. the stores? I think so. I mean, we've had brick and mortar stores contact us already. Mm-hmm. We haven't sent anything out to them. They've just kind of seen it in the press and been like, look, well, that's something that we'd be interested in because we need to know um, how consumers are relating with our products. Right. If that's something that they can get their whole range in front of consumers without limiting them with the categorizations. And that's something that they're definitely interested in. So part of what you're bringing people then is this real sense of surprise. Mm -hmm. Fashion discovery, we like to call it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but it is. It's like you're looking at something and go, oh, that's really cool. Or, oh, I really like that. Or, oh, that's horrible. I don't want that. So is, is that then applicable to other things besides fashion? Or is fashion sort of where that's going to live? Do you see stashed as being something for people to discover other kinds of things beyond what yeah, they wear. Yeah, I think there's definitely opportunities to, sc- to discover other types of things. Stashed at the moment, we're staying um, directly just in retail at the moment because we found that's a very passionate market to tap into. Mm. Um, we and do, a big one. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we want to keep it in the realm of fashion, but by no means are we going to keep it just in items that you can purchase right now. Like, there's a lot of different potentials with aligning with different events and stashing and trashing things that are happening in live events. So, stash and, for New Year's Eve, stash for Mardi yeah. Gras, stash for whatever. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Might be. Yeah, so we're looking into things like that as well. So there's a lot of different scopes, but within the fashion realm, that you can definitely utilize the stashing. Uh, so there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of verticals in yeah. this. Wow. Okay. <laughs> You're listening to this week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and listening to Jessica Wilson, you can hear how important fish burners has been to getting stashed up and running because, as she's saying, she's been able to meet people, exchange ideas, learn from them, and find out what she needed to know to succeed as an entrepreneur and to build what is now a global business. Find out more at fishburners.org. And we're back with Jessica Wilson. Jessica, what was the hardest part? What has been the hardest part of getting this up and running as a business? The hardest part, um, I'm not a technical founder mm-hmm. <laughs> and I never set out to be, mm-hmm. like I was never looking to get into this tech startup space, it's just kind of where I fell into. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I kind of see technology as an opportunity as a vehicle to innovate yes. an industry. So that's kind of how I view that. Mm. And being a non-technical founder, it's been quite 
an interesting journey learning to understand how it all works, Mm -hmm. finding the right people, being able to relay that information because being not technical as a background, I can't pick up code and read it and then know how good they are how good they aren't. Um, It's like a press release. But presumably a co-founder can do that, Yeah, they can. Yeah, but I mean, you have difficulties with co-founders where you've got to source other people and it's just a bit of a, yeah, so it's not like I can pick up a press release and read it and know how good it is. So Mm -hmm. it's a bit of like a language barrier kind of. But um, yeah, so that's probably been the biggest and I mean, have you found that people are willing to to help you along and to teach you? And yeah, they around? are. I mean, Fishburners has been amazing because um, that's obviously a lot of different tech startups. There's a lot of people that are willing to help um, because my background's in PR. I can kind of help them, and they can help me. So it's a bit of like exchanging and yeah. helping with what we're good at. So the, the mutual assistance. Yeah, <laughs> that's worked out quite well. So do you suspect that you're going to have to become even more technical in the future? Or do you think that you're probably just going to be fine the way you are with the level I think I'll be okay with it at the moment. It's more so just having an understanding with how everything works and um, just knowing just simplistic things about how the back end works and all of that type thing. Because when I first started, I had absolutely no idea. Um, I just jumped into this and was like, okay, I want to do this and then kind of feed it out as I went. But um, yeah, so it's definitely an industry that is completely different to fashion. The tech and the fashion industries are completely different and it's just learning the ropes in something that was just so foreign to me. So... I mean, I mean, I think you're right. In either environment, one's going to be a fish out of water in the yes, other exactly. environment. And that, in fact, may be one reason why retailing has, online retailing has had such a, not, not a strong technological record because mm-hmm. the folks running retail aren't as tuned uh, in. 100%. And, and so, but then you get to be one of the people who actually crosses the chasm on mm-hmm. that. Right, you know, you're at the beginning of your career, having crossed that chasm, and that then means that that's a, and that's a skill that's going to be in demand. Mm-hmm. But now let's talk about. So, is it still just the two of you? At the moment, I'm the sole founder. Right. Um, Pete had to go on to a different venture that he was tied to before Stashed, okay. which is fair enough. Um, so you're 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 doing this all on your own. Yeah, now. pretty much. I've got a couple Lordy. of guys who. <laughs> How does that? I mean, is that that's got to be a bit of pressure, though? It is. Yeah. Um, it's grown a. a, a a lot in the last just few months. So at the moment, I've got a tech team who's handling the tech for me. Mm -hmm. I'm actually doing a campaign with a Forbes.com contributor early January to do a kind of like a, I can't speak too much about it, but do a campaign around growing the stash team essentially. So that's something I'm super excited about too. Okay. So you're going to be growing the team. I mean, is the business uh, capital hungry or is it, or is it just sort of ticking over on its own? Do you need to have lots of investment coming in to grow the business? Um, we've bootstrapped it thus far. So we're making a little bit of money at the moment. Mm. Um, I'm definitely looking to go into a seed round around February, March next year. Right. And yeah. I would assume that people are probably beating down the door to talk yeah, to they you. Are. <laughs> <laughs> I had an investor just rock up at Fishburners the other day and was like, I need to talk to you. I was like, okay, hi, who are you? <laughs> but um, yeah, so there's a lot of interest there, but it's like I want it to be at a point where I'm happy to take on seed investment and that's going to be around February, March next year. Yeah, you, know, you want to have all yep. of your ducks in line. Mm-hmm. Where do you see the business going over the next, say, five years? If you had a blank piece of paper and I said, mm-hmm. okay, draw out what your path is for the business, how do you see the business growing yeah. over five I years? I see it just centralising online shopping because online shopping right now, I, I see, I think that we kind of think of it as if we're shopping brick and mortar. So you walk into each individual store and that's all you can really do because right. you can't physically be in two places at once. Right. But you can with the internet and you can with apps. So I want to centralise online shopping on a global scale. So depending on where you are in the world, you can stash or trash looks from different stores 
anywhere in the world mm-hmm. in one location. So that's the main aim of where I see it going. And I also see it helping designers and helping retailers and making smarter decisions on what they need to put in front of their consumers, depending on how old they are, depending on what gender they are, where they're located or how they're interacting with the app and the data that we can relay back to them. Does that put you in competition with, say, an Amazon? I mean, that's a big call, but potentially. But potentially. I mean, yeah. well, certainly with Zappos or something like mm-hmm. that. Do you sell shoes on? We do, yeah. We so, sell um, all clothing, shoes, handbags, accessories, accessories and beauty products. Okay. All right. Yeah. So it, it, it does mean, I mean, you know, when I say you go, going to competition with Amazon, Amazon is trying to be the, yes. that universal retailer in every mm-hmm. domain, not just clothing. Mm-hmm. And they haven't even been, I think with the exception of Zappos, particularly successful mm-hmm. in clothing, which actually almost makes it more likely that they will come up and try to buy you than it is that they will try to mm-hmm. compete with you. Um, but there are very few companies that can say that they've had any global success in clothes retailing, mm-hmm. right? So you're creating a framework that will allow that to happen. Yeah, definitely. So does that mean, I mean, do you expect that you're going to continue to be a vehicle for other retailers? Or do you think that there will be, there will be stashed brands that you'll be able to develop by listening to your consumers and their likes and their dislikes? Do you... Do you... Mm. I mean, at the moment, we're going to stick with the retailers. But I mean... The potential with Stash is just endless, really. I mean, mm. if that's something that we can see a certain look or a certain brand is trending, that's obviously something that we can take on board and work with that as it happens. Right. But at the moment, it's definitely just working with different retailers and helping them and getting their products out to more consumers right. and that type of And thing. so if you're in, you said, 86 countries? 86 now, So yeah. is it, I mean, are, are all of these versions internationalized or is everyone using English, basically? I mean, how is that yeah, working? Yeah, well, I mean, um, Pete developed it in a way that it kind of changes on whereabouts you're based. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, all the stores that we have are globally shipping, so that works out quite well. We don't have to deal with too many logistics there right. because we don't handle the logistics. It's all based on the stores anyway. We literally just take a cut of everything that happens. So there's not too much that has to go on with the exchange exchanging there. So, so you were global from day one yeah. in, in your approach. See, and you didn't even particularly aim for an Australian market using no. the app. It was a global market mm-hmm. using the app and a global range of stores. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, and that's also quite unique in that sense. Oh, that you're aggregating globally, and you, but you're aggregating globally on both sides, on both consumers and on yep. retailers. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about <laughs> female entrepreneurs, female yes. tech entrepreneurs, which I know is a subject that's very close to you. It is. Now, they're rare. They're very I'm rare. I'm very glad and I'm very pleased to have you on the show Thank because you. part of what I want to do is to celebrate the fact that women are at least as good as this at man. <laughs> and certainly talking to you, that's Seriously, very clear. Though, yeah. What do you think we need to do? I mean, you you literally did come into this from the outside, and maybe mm-hmm. that was one of the reasons why it worked. You came in from mm-hmm. this other very well-established industry with its own norms into an industry that is very well-established and yes. has its own norms. What do we need to do to continue to sort of make mm-hmm. that path open for women? Oh, gosh, there's a lot of things that I think need to be done, to be honest. Um, I think a lot of it is what's portrayed in the media to women as well. Mm-hmm. I think there needs to be a lot of education um, to women because women think that if they're going to get a tech job or they're going to learn how to code, they're going to be sitting in a box and working on some geeky assignment right. that they're not interested in. But the way I view it is technology is the way of the future. And if you can get yourself involved with that, that's a whole nother realm of opportunity. Right. And that's something that I think we need to educate women on and be like, okay, well, it's not just, okay, you'll learn how to code, then you're going to go and work for something and it's going to be video games because right. that's just how it's stereotyped at right. the moment. It's women work in fashion and men 
love video games or love fast cars. It's right. just, it's silly, really. Right. And I mean, times have changed. And if you can learn how to be, how to have the skills to be in the way of the future, then it's going to benefit you so, a so, lot. So what skills should we be focusing on making sure that women have them? I would have loved to learn how to code, to mm-hmm. be honest. That's something that I would have loved. I've met a, a lady who um, runs a company in the US, Girls Who Code, Yes, which um, I think she's amazing. I've met some really empowering women over in the US. There's another lady, um, Denise, who's a Forbes.com contributor who's all about empowering women and promoting that through women as well. Right. Um, and yeah, I think it's just changing the stigma around what the tech industry is and making women feel welcome into the tech industry mm. because I was like a sore th- I stuck out like a sore thumb when I got into fish burners. Yes, <laughs> I can imagine that. Yeah. Oh my God, a girl, what do we do? I know, it's, yeah, it's funny. But um, yeah, I just think it's kind of just educating people a yeah. lot more because it's not, it doesn't have to be categorized into girls do this and boys do this. Girls can do whatever they want and guys can do whatever they want. Yes. It's just kind of like making that path open for them. Do you feel like, still feel like a sore thumb around here? Not now <laughs> because I've met everybody now but when I first rocked up I got to feel like oh what's she doing here kind of (laughs) (laughs) kind of looks all right so you are now lined up to be one of the Forbes under 30 in 2015 you've been nominated I've been nominated I suspect after this conversation that you'll get on that list but that's just a gut feeling on my part (laughs) and that would put you in a very rarefied realm Mark Zuckerberg is is one of those people as Mm -hmm. well uh, how do you? How does that make you feel? That is, it's. I can't even really put it into words. To be honest, it's something that I dove into this industry. Just, I dove into it because I was passionate about it mm. ten months ago, mm. and it's like to have that recognition after ten months of working extremely hard is just something that I'm just so grateful for, really. And it's something that is just such a huge opportunity. And even just to have a nomination is just a massive deal yes. to me. So that's something that I'm just so like incredibly excited about and incredibly hopeful that it happens. I, I think when it happens, we'll have you back on and we'll oh, let okay. you grow about it. <laughs> what one bit of advice mm-hmm. would you give to any entrepreneur, man or woman, who's yeah. thinking of getting started, who might not be technical? Mm-hmm. What, what advice would you give them? Just do it. I mean, it sounds cliche, but you need to just put yourself into opportunity and just learn as fast as you can, fail as fast as you can. Go to meetups and just pick the brains of people that are smarter than you because you're going to learn so much. Um, when I first started, I just went to networking event after networking event and I just each one I learned a lot more. I knew kind of who to speak to and if I wanted to speak to them, I'd send them like a package to their door and be like, look, I'm really interested in what you're doing. Can I just have like 10 minutes of your time? I've sent like helium balloons attached to a bottle of champagne to somebody before because I'm like, I need to speak to you. Can you just give me 10 minutes? So I think just think outside the box, put yourself an opportunity and just do it because why not really? Like it's the perfect time to get involved in it. Jessica Wilson, thank you very much for joining us on This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you for having me. When we're recording This Week in Startups Australia, both Felix and I take a lot of behind-the-scenes photos, which we post to our Tumblr at twistartupaus.tumblr.com. You can also find SoundCloud and YouTube versions of our podcast on the site. So check it out at twistartupaus.tumblr.com. Venture capitalists strike a mixture of awe and fear into the hearts of most tech entrepreneurs. We either want to cast them as Santa Claus, ready to dole out a bag full of goodies, or as the Grinch who stole Christmas, hard, implacable, mean... Both of those extremes are pretty ridiculous. Venture capital is a business. Like any business, 
It makes investments in order to turn a profit. And it's nothing really more complicated than that. I'm joined today by one of Australia's most successful venture capitalists. Rick Baker is the managing director of Blackbird Ventures, where he's overseen investments in two outstanding Australian startups, Shoes of Prey and Canva. Rick, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you. I think maybe first, what I want to do is demystify what you do a little bit. So let's talk about what you do. Okay, so Blackbird Ventures is a venture capital fund. It's a small venture capital fund, so we've raised $30 million to invest into Australian-based internet and software companies. Mm -hmm. What do we do? We firstly have to go out and fundraise for our fund. So I say to a lot of founders that I meet, I've been through exactly what you're going through right now. We spent 22 months raising the $30 million. million. So almost a million dollars a month, basically. Just about. We have 95 investors in our fund, and it's it was a long, hard route to right. raise capital. Um, you know, I often say it was one of the largest angel rounds ever raised. Exactly. Um, well, there, you know, if you have 95 investors over $30 million, that's a really almost sort of angel yeah, it is. funds it's from sort each of person. 260K is our average yeah. bite size into our fund. And why do we have to do it that way? Because at the moment, the Aussie institutions are not investing into Australian venture capital. Mm. There's a whole lot of reasons for that. Um, but we had to go out and get our money from high net worths. Right. And in particular at Blackbird, that means um, Aussie tech founders, which okay. is where we've raised The usual suspects capital. that I could rattle off yeah, there, yeah. Exactly. So we had to go and raise this capital. We have a pool of capital now to invest over a five-year period mm-hmm. into tech companies. Mm-hmm. So we will invest in about 20 companies. We've invested in, t- in 14 so far. And our target is to invest into those companies and then over the next five to eight years to see a really big increase in value. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of cliche that venture capital is looking for 10 times return on capital over that time period. But in actual fact, what we're really looking for is 100, 200, 300 times. But from a much smaller percentage of those companies. Exactly. And we're looking for, out of our 20 companies, one, if we're lucky, we'll have this 100 plus outcome and we'll pay back the fund hopefully one or two or three times over right um in reality you know what will probably happen is we'll get one or two really good successes um three or four really good you know solid say three to four times our capital and then the rest will kind of make our money back or lose our capital right and so we're really looking for those outstanding companies and 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 this is the thing i i think a lot of people don't get about a venture fund is that the people who invested are basically probably going to be getting a seven or eight percent return out of this, right? Well, we hope you, it. We hope it's a lot more than that. You, so, venture capital on average has produced only that, and that's yeah. even in Silicon Valley. Yes, um, and venture capital in Australia is unfortunately sitting on and probably a, a negative IRR mm-hmm. in that people are currently, you know, as as assets are valued in those portfolios, sitting underwater. Um, there are a lot of great companies in those portfolios and it may well come back back above water, but they're not uh, making huge returns. From the best venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, we're seeing very strong returns, particularly now and during the last dot-com boom period, right. we're seeing funds that made 20, 30 times their capital. Right. And that's really what investors are looking for. <laughs> Why wouldn't they? 
but they get it very rarely. Right. And you know what what would be a good outcome for our fund would be two and a half, three times our capital, kind of a tick. Well done, guys. Mm. Um, four or five times is looking to be a very good fund. Um, but the majority of funds make you know one one point five two times the capital over a 10-year period. Right, exactly. So you're really yeah. talking about a relative, what is actually a relatively, you know, not, not an insane, not a bad rate of return, but just a modestly good investment strategy. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if, if you compare it to interest rates now, it's looking, looking you know, right. if you can create a 25% IRR, which is what we're sort of targeting, that's, that's a fantastic return. On the um, other hand, you're competing against, say, Sydney real estate, which has got true. something between 10 and 15% year-on-year returns, <laughs> right? Yes. And how does that then affect uh, Australian investors' willingness to put money into the venture fund? Look, I think, um, firstly, starting at the institutions, they have, in the past, put quite a lot of money into venture capital and have not got the returns that they require out of it. Mm. Um, so they are not investing at the moment. Uh, High net worth individuals, I think, are starting to understand the potential of venture capital. Mm -hmm. And we're certainly seeing a huge increase and swell in activity in startups in Australia over the last three to five years. And I think that's attracting a lot of capital in. And it always starts with high net worths. And particularly, it starts with high net worths who know technology. A lot of people who actually made their money in technology tend to lead the fray. And then you see a whole load of people um, follow in. I think we're at, we're definitely in boom times in um, in tech uh, funding at the moment. So let me ask you about that. Why why is that? What is causing the boom? I mean, is it just that it's leaking over from from California, or is it is it something that's endogenous to Australia? Look, it starts with California and the, and really the whole of the US, but mm. let's just take um, Silicon Valley, obviously, as the epicenter of it. The, re, the, the valuations there are, are enormous at the moment. You know, I, I don't like to use the word bubble, but I think solid boom, boom time is what we're in now. And we've just seen Uber with a $40 billion valuation. Now, we there is need. a fantastic company. I love it. But Uber. they're also earning, what, uh, $2 billion? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Something yeah. like that. Just... But, a, you know, a fabulous company, but a whopping valuation, you know, that's enormous. And we're seeing that across the board. Some really, really solid, excellent companies, just very, very highly valued. And that has now trickled down in, in Silicon Valley still into the angel and um, seed and Series A space, particularly in this seed angel space, which has been flooded with money. Mm. And we're seeing very high valuations in that space. And then anything that breaks out is getting huge valuations at the moment. Now, come back to Australia, certainly founders are seeing those valuations. Silicon Valley is now very open. You, you know, anyone can see and read, any sophisticated right. founder should have seen the valuations of companies that, that are similar to them. And we're seeing them come to us and say, look, you know, I'm comparing to this, this and this in Silicon Valley. And, and obviously that's not a reasonable, in, in many cases, not a reasonable comparison. But where we're starting to see kind of that a little bit of that trickle into Australia and we're starting to see more capital you know I think the successes of Silicon Valley and the huge wealth that's been generated and a few successes in Australia Mm. you know we've now got 15 to 20 lighthouse successful companies in Australia Atlassian Campaign Monitor Ozforex Aconex what's the um, new one Freelance Gosford yeah 
the one that does the receipts. Or I'm trying to remember. They got invoice a, to go. Invoice to invoice go. Invoice to go, which right. Axel invested in yeah. exactly. Um, we're seeing those founders and their investors become seriously rich right. off off the back of it, and that I think is sucking in um, high net worth money that's that's far more speculative in Australia, and we're seeing the, some of the mining cash that was going into speculative digging so, holes in ground coming into the tech space, which is a good and a bad thing. So this is, but this is the interesting thing because two weeks ago, uh, a month ago, Ned Morefield was sitting where you're sitting, talking about how he raised his money for GoCatch. And then we were talking to Phil Morrill, and it turns out that a lot of that hot money that had been in highly speculative mining investments, which have a lower rate of return than these VC funds, are now opening up to technology investments if the institutions can figure out the, a framework for them, they, which they had to do with the wildcat miners as well, but they did that 30 years ago. Yeah. So I haven't seen any institutions really figure it out. What's tend to happen now is it's been individuals that are putting money into it. And I think there's there's kind of a number of ways that individuals get into it. The first is is just meeting people around, um, and and there's good and bad things about that. I, I I worry about what I call cocktail party angel investing, which is I meet a friend whose whose nephew's right. son's you know girlfriend is starting a great company, and you know they throw some money in, and really what they haven't done is is understood the I guess I guess the breadth of the market mm. and rated that opportunity amongst everything and particularly often don't understand that there might be three or four teams in Silicon Valley doing that right. with 20 million bucks of funding each and so there's that kind of investing which is good and bad but but you know is a little worrisome um, and then there's the stockbrokers which are who are um, bringing clients into early stage venture capital companies Again, good and bad. At least, you know, often we're seeing the stockbrokers do some quite a lot of due diligence and produce some some meaningful information for the investors to to make a decision on. But also a lot of hot speculative mm. talking up of companies, um, pump and dump, basically. Yeah, well, you know, pump definitely. I, you know, we'll <laughs> see about what what happens on the other half. Uh, then, of course, we're seeing the backdoor listings, right. um, which also good and bad. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think there are some companies that I've seen use that route that definitely deserve to be listed, and there are others that worry me because they're just so early. Um, You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. When you listen to a venture capitalist like Rick Baker, you really start to understand that the business of technology is drawn a lot from networks of knowledge. It's drawn from networks of business. And there are a few better places in all of Australia to find those networks coming together than someplace like Fishburners. It's certainly given me and other entrepreneurs an amazing opportunity to meet with and to connect with the bright minds in technology and the bright minds in business to make businesses that work, to make businesses that succeed. Find out more at fishburners.org. We're back with Rick Baker, who's the managing director of Blackbird Ventures. So, Rick, what you've just described are actually a whole bunch of ways to raise capital that have very little to do with what we would think of as the formal processes of venture capital. Are these systems developing because venture capital in Australia isn't quite at the scale to be able to handle the demands that are being placed on it? Look, I think it's partly that. 
but if you look over in Silicon Valley, you know what I was talking about was really this angel seed stage. Mm. And if you look over to Silicon Valley, there's also a boom in that stage as well. Well, and because of Angelist and the syndicate formation, right? Yeah, partly because of that, but also because of the the desire to, I guess, replicate big returns that people have got from investing early. And we've seen the institutionalization of this angel investor in the seed and micro VC funds, the right. super angels. Um, so in Australia, that's partly it. And then I think partly is is what you are saying is that there, there is a lack of venture cap- institutionalized or professionalized venture capital in Australia. And I think the you know, in Australia now, the, the really good news is, is because of this sort of groundswell of activity from angels, it's now well and truly possible to get up a good angel round in Australia from a founder's point of view. The, there, there's been a good flu, you know, flow of money and I think there's been, there are now a handful of what I call sort of a new breed of VCs popping up mm-hmm. and a bunch of them like us are starting with smaller funds. Right. Um, and... You know, in a in a way, I see that sort of the new way that venture capital grows. I think both in Silicon Valley and Australia, um, small funds starting up, building a track record, and getting gradually bigger and bigger and becoming more more which like is, which is how all the fees. all the funds in California got started anyway. A lot True, of them were smaller although, funds, and then would have a big hit, and then yeah, exactly. Um, and so we're seeing that happen in Australia. This sort of new new flow of VC in, but there's still a, a real gap in the funding market in Australia. Um, from about the $2 million raise to the $10 million right. raise. And so um, angel rounds, say 500k to $1 million, well and truly possible. If you're a good team with a good market and a good product, you should be able to raise that money. And people who come to me and say, oh, it's too hard, it's too terrible, I can't do it. You know, Honestly, the problem is probably with the team and the founders of the product right. rather than the market right. in that angel space. Kind of what I call a classic Series A, which is kind of two to three million dollars, is doable but hard in Australia. There's only probably a handful of people like Blackbird who sort of specialise in that. And then at that sort of two to ten million dollars is is a real gap still. And that's because at the ten million dollar mark, we're starting to see the US VCs right. come across here and, and growth funds and people like Axel mm-hmm. and. Sequoia, and they're and, all coming down because they need to compete with the syndicate angels now, right? So they're also taking yep. a different slice of that market. So they're looking for fresh deal flow here, and quite frankly, they're they're finding awesome companies here. I mean, that that's really what's brought them down here is a handful of really awesome Aussie companies, and and they've seen that on a global benchmark right. that these companies are, are well and truly worth them tra- chasing. So they're coming down and chasing, and. Do you think they're coming down because they're getting bargains as well because the valuations are correspondingly lower for the company? I, I think at that stage, uh, the days of getting a bargain are probably over. No. I think what they're getting is less competition in that perhaps there's not a crazy bidding war that just you know either bids them out of the market right. or, or they lose the bid, and they know that if they can spend a bit of time, get here a little earlier understand the company and the market, they've got a better chance of winning it. Having said that, if you look at um, all of the big sort of growthy round deals done, big ones done recently here, they were hugely competitive from Silicon Valley Mm. um, and US-based firms. Well, Campaign Monitor. Campaign Monitor is a a great example of that. I know there were five or six US firms really, really keen to to do that investment. And uh, Insight and Axel obviously won that one. Mm. 
Um, so I think at that, st- you know, they're not really getting a bargain. There, there is pretty much global pricing. And I think at the, you know, even through the Angel um, and, you know, Seed Series A thing here, the pricing here is not that much less than Silicon Valley. Just what we're seeing is less of the kind of crazy, again, hugely competitive, bit up the price, it just pops up incredibly. There are just less of them in Australia. Okay. Now let's go to the sort of nuts and bolts here. What makes a pitch pop for you? Okay, so at Blackbird, we have a couple of really core cool criteria which starts our filtering. The first one for us, and this is is um, personal to us rather mm. than VC in general, it's we need to see a business that is global day one. Okay. And by that I mean selling to a global market where the customers don't know or care you're Australian. Right. You well, might we, be we very proud had, that you are. We just had Jessica know. Wilson on the couch yeah. with Stashed, all right? And that's yeah. it. She was global from day one. Probably no one knows she's in Australia. Absolutely. I mean, you know, many people I speak to, Atlassian, I think, is almost more common and commonly known in, in over in the States than it is here. Yeah. And they are, they're Australian? What do you mean they're Australian? <laughs> yes. Um, so, so that's very important for us. And then it's this, this, obviously, we have to believe that you can sell your product to the global market. Mm-hmm. And so what we're looking for is a scalable marketing and sales model Um, and then for us also we need to see that starting to happen and so what we're looking for is traction traction is the best fundraising tool that any founder can ever have right (laughs) absolutely listen showing someone a sales book is a very convincing argument yeah and and where you know blackbird is has the luxury um you know is lucky enough to be able to invest at that stage where we can start to see the emerging qualities of a business and so what we're looking for is a bunch of metrics that prove out that you've got product market fit. Mm-hmm. So in 90% of the, 99 perhaps, percent of the businesses that come across our desk, we have no doubt that the products can be built. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very few, and there's one or two in our portfolio where we do have some technology risk, but nowadays most of it, particularly if you're looking at SaaS, mobile, yeah. you know, um, it's all in the cloud. marketplaces, etc., it's all in the cloud, and we believe that, that the founders we've got to believe, but usually we believe the founders can can build that software. Right. But our biggest risk as venture capitalists is will people want to buy it? So right. the product market fit question. So we're looking for metrics that start to prove out that product market fit. And at our stage, it's really metrics that are starting to prove it out. So revenue is one of the best metrics for, to prove out product market fit because you can see people are paying for it. Right. But it's not the only metric. And so um, user growth, conversion ratios... Um, Engagement, and we're particularly focused on engagement. We, we want to see how people are using your product. And, you know, we, we do do, for example, customer calls to, to a, a customers of our potential um, investee companies. But more importantly, because that's kind of looking at, looking at an animal in a zoo, right? Mm. More importantly, we want to actually get into the metrics and see how they're using the product, yeah. see how often, you know, what they're using it for, we, we try and pick for every company one or two core metrics, which are metrics that we think prove that people really like and value the product. And that's what we're looking for. That, that's what make it, makes it pop, I think, so for us. You want, you want customers is, who love what they're using. Yeah, yeah. That's what makes it pop is some really solid metrics, well-thought-out metrics that say, yes, this is people love it, use it, and continue to use it. All right. Last question. What technologies are you seeing now that are on the horizon that make your heart beat faster? 
What is exciting you? <laughs> Where do you want to be? What kinds of companies do you want to see happen? What kinds of industries? Okay, good. So, so I'm going to start with something sort of that's that's far less exciting and, and sexy, and that's SaaS. And we really like software as a service mm. businesses. We think there's still a long way to go in corporates moving from yeah. in-house systems to um, yeah. SaaS-based systems. Huge. We we love SaaS sold in a bottom-up way. So we like the technologies around getting people to start using your software and particularly the people who are actually using the software, buying the software. So it's not a sale to a high-level CTO that takes a a year and you're going to have steak dinners and play golf, right? We want people, you know, we had a great company called Safety Culture, which does workplace safety applications. Right. And the people who find it, and buy it and champion it within an organisation are usually the people out in the field in a high-vis jacket who before were ticking paper right. paper checklists and now do it digitally and they love it. They find it themselves and they push it up inside organisations. So it's almost a technology around selling as much as a technology itself. Next one we really love is the whole cryptocurrency movement. And what we love about that, and I, it's a, perhaps a more generalised theme, is is technology and business models that allow people to do things they couldn't do before that technology was around. And we think that cryptocurrencies, and let's just take Bitcoin as a starter, Mm. Bitcoin and particularly the Bitcoin blockchain Mm. is a really, really interesting place. And for a number of reasons. One is that we're going to see more and more financial services which are able to be provided without touching the current money markets. And Coinjar, one of our companies, is a good example there. Very soon you'll be able to exchange currencies without going through the normal banking routes. And that means that those guys can do a $5 million or $10 million transfer from one currency to another or a $0.05 cent transfer from one currency to another. With no fees. With no fees. And at the moment, they will charge fees at some point. At the moment, there's no fees, right? And that's a, yeah, that's a huge change because it would have cost you, I don't know, hundred grand to, to send you $5 million. Well, we had Ronald Tucker from uh, Betrayed Australia in here, and he was talking about the amount of trade volume that goes back and forth just in uh, iron ore between Australia and China, and that there's $100 million in fees there just yeah. to change the money. Yeah, yeah, it's just crazy. Um, so I think we'll see huge disruption. It's got a way to go, and there's a lot of obstacles. But what's really interesting is we're finding companies that are able to sort of find their way around the obstacles and mm. just do it. You know, it's almost an Uber-like model. You just do it. And I'm, I'm sure Ned would have had some things to say last week about this, but just do it, right? And, mm. and then we'll come back and we'll find ways to get permission and, you know, get it working properly. You know, when it comes to the blockchain, we love the fact that the blockchain is really a register of, of transactions and we love, there's a, there's a company called Vend, which is actually just about to enter our Startmate program, mm-hmm. which is using the, the counterparty protocol, which, is, which allows you to build really what I call digital assets, which are asset registers right. and typical asset management functions like buying and selling, doing voting, um, uh, recalling those assets or doing distributions based on those assets. All that classic asset management stuff can now be done in a fully secure and verified way using the blockchain. And I think that has you know, implications to change the way we manage shareholder registries, you know, Torrent's title of our properties, yeah. all of that stuff I think is you know, absolutely fascinating. Rick Baker, thank you very much for being the final guest on 2014's episodes of This Week in Startups Australia. Fantastic to be here. Thank you. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. Over the past two months, 
I've had the opportunity to talk to people throughout the startup community in Australia. You've heard a variety of accents. We started with Ian Gardner's Scottish Burr. We had Roland Tucker's Clipped Canadian. We had Tim Fung's Classically Australian Rising Inflection. A quarter of all Australians were born somewhere else. This is an immigrant nation. It's a place where people come to make their lives better. Technology startups attract the same kinds of risk takers who would move themselves to the other side of the world to make a fresh start. Every entrepreneur is an immigrant, a pioneer exploring the undiscovered country of innovation. We've only just started exploring that new land on This Week in Startups Australia. I hope you'll stay with us in 2015 as we continue our journey. Big thanks to Murray Herps and Fishburners for their support throughout the whole of 2014. Without them, this would have been nearly impossible. To Felix Warmoth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that is a joy to listen to. Thanks to Jessica Wilson and Rick Baker for coming on to our show. And thanks to all of the guests who gave us such a great start in 2014. Felix and I are going to go off and enjoy our summer holidays. You'll hear from us again at the beginning of February when we kick off the next year of This Week in Startups Australia. For now, this is Mark Pesci wishing you a very Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year.